Welcome to The Deciders. This is Renee Frazier, the founder and CEO of Frazier Communications. We're the leading woman-owned advertising and communications firm in Southern California. And you know us for campaigns like Talk, Read, Sing, and most recently for vaccine messaging about COVID-19. At Frazier, we specialize in changing behaviors to grow brands and to use communications to have a positive impact on the world. But our show, The Deciders, is focused on leaders in their fields, change agents, and we try to address issues that are top of mind and of concern to all of our community. I think in this day and age, we've all experienced stress, anxiety, social and mental challenges over the past year with COVID-19 changing the way we work and how we form our friendships, our social interactions. As a result of this, I know there's new research about how to navigate better in this stressful environment, practical tips we can learn, and new science. Our guest today will share with us how we can manage better, be more resilient in these changing times. And I first came across her at the Girl Scouts program about raising resilient girls. She'll speak about that, but the tips she's going to give us apply to all of us. So let me introduce Dr. Judy Ho. She is a triple board certified and licensed clinical and forensic neuropsychologist, a tenured associate professor, a clinical researcher, and published author. She's a two-time recipient of the National Institute of Mental Health Services Research Award, and she's active in research programs to improve mental health. Dr. Judy Ho, welcome to The Deciders. Hi, Renee. It's so good to be with you today. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Let's talk about, at the start, some of the new research regarding how all the COVID restrictions are impacting all of us, and especially teenagers. Well, it's startling what the impact has been for our entire population, but certainly for our younger teens and children as well. So first of all, during this past year, anxiety and depression in terms of clinically significant symptoms has risen to about a third of the U.S. population, according to a recent study by the U.S. Census Bureau. APA, which is American Psychological Association, they uh, produce a stress in America survey every single year. And the survey that they produced in this past year as it aligned with COVID showed that eight out of 10 people were finding that COVID and related issues were a significant life stress for them. We also see that the long-term consequences of this persistent stress and trauma created by the pandemic are particularly serious for our country's youngest individuals known as Gen Z. So this 2020 survey by APA shows that Gen Z teens ages 13 to 17 and Gen Z adults ages 18 to 23 are facing unprecedented uncertainty elevated stress and are already reporting early symptoms of depression. And this is why we need to act right now to help those who need it and prevent a much more serious and widespread mental health crisis. I read a study uh, yesterday regarding this problem for business owners. And I own my own company and very concerned about my own employees. This was national research and suggested that as many as 30 percent are experiencing some forms of depression, particularly when they face uh, coming back to work. There's a lot of anxiety, uncertainty. Uh, and worry about it. Provide us with some advice, some t ways in which people can better deal with this, both as an individual and perhaps as a leader or a manager of, of individuals. 
Absolutely. You know, so much of this has to do with the wrestling with the unknowns for such a long period of time. Human beings are not meant to be in this persistent state of unknowns for this long. Human beings are very well adapted and equipped to deal with moment to moment stress. They're really good at releasing that fight or flight response. But usually after a really short and maybe intense period of fight or flight, they get to reset. You know, they get to go back into their parasympathetic nervous system and they get to relax and they understand how the environment around them works and they feel like they can be in control of their lives. COVID has really been unprecedented in that basically it's been about a year and a half now that people just don't know what's coming next. And that throws a lot of people's nervous systems into chaos. And when that happens, it can be very hard to stay resilient. And so one of the things that I always advise people to do during these times is to recognize that this problem is completely universal. It's not just you. There's, it's not a weakness that you have that you're starting to have these symptoms or feel discouraged. This is sort of how our minds and bodies are built as human beings. And so to work with the mind and bodies that we've been built, you know, it's important that we find the things that we can control and really do something about the problems that we can solve. Oftentimes people will report anxiety because they are worried about everything under the sun, including things that they really have no control over. So it's really about identifying what do I have control over and what do I not have control over? The ones that you don't have control over, it's hard, but you have to let those go. Focus on the things that you can do something about and then essentially tackle it one at a time. Okay, what is one thing that I can do to tackle this problem today to try to get it to move forward and to regain some sense of control and stability in my life. So I'm trying to think of examples. I mean, I know that uh, in the case of my work environment, a person, I'm going to write a to-do list. I'm going to do a workout. I'm going to be able to sit down and have a cup of coffee on my own schedule. And then I'm only going to do four Zoom calls today. Yes. Uh, or three. I'm going to limit the number that I do and I'm going to be productive. It's, it's really being willing to take charge and not be forced into this uh, amorphous unknown of what's going to come at me next. Because I, I hear what you're saying. There's a sense of anxiety when you feel like you're out of control. Can, let, me, let me go back to teens for just a moment and uh, girls and boys. How do they act out when they're in these stressful times? How can parents kind of look at and recognize the signs and then what should they do about it? Well, it's really interesting because kids and teens don't always express their emotional concerns the same way as adults do. And so we have to be sensitive to how they might act out some of their emotional concerns. When we are looking at younger children, younger children tend to attribute a lot of their stress, anxiety, and emotional symptoms to physical symptoms. So they'll say things like, my stomach hurts, my head hurts, I feel sick. I don't want to go to school. They might start to refuse school or start to show a deeper attachment to their parents. I don't want to leave home. Those are the types of things that are important to look for in younger children. As children approach their teens, they can talk about it more, but oftentimes they don't. And so looking for different behaviors in your teenagers, are they going home and locking themselves in their rooms and not coming out for hours at a time? Are they just becoming more and more distant over time? Do they snap at the most tiny little things, just really, really irritable for no reason? Um, are they not only disengaged, but do they make little futile comments here and there? Like, well, it doesn't really matter. I don't know if I'm going to be here tomorrow anyway. Or another telltale sign of something that might actually be more serious. They're starting to give away their prized possessions or making lists of some of the things that are the most important to them and saying, well, I'm going to give this to so-and-so 
um, when that time comes. You know, these are really important signs to be watching for in our teens and could actually signal us to things like suicidal ideation and thoughts of self-harm. Those are serious and that's important, I think. Uh, you know, the being withdrawn, unfortunately, also happens with teenagerhood, right? It's mm -hmm. Uh, so it's hard for parents to know. And I think it's also like the proverbial frog in the warm water. You're so accustomed to it. You've acclimated. There has to be a better attention paid. Any thoughts about that? How you could differentiate between what seems to be a norm for their teenager years versus what is a signal that there may be more serious uh, depression or isolation concerns? Yeah, that's a really great question, Renee. And I think that a lot of times, like you said, parents maybe feel a little bit discouraged themselves parenting teenagers. You know, they're being obstinate. They're acting like they don't want to be around their parents. And so sometimes you say, OK, fine, then I don't want to be around you either. I guess I'll leave you alone. Um, right. But the, the most important thing that we have found in research is that parental monitoring really staves off a lot of the negative outcomes of our teenagers. And so, you know, as annoying as you think you're being, just remember that that is one of the most powerful tools you have at your disposal to keep on top of your teenagers, keep on top of them, ask them what they're doing, who they're with, what they're planning to do today. It's never okay for your teenager to be in their room for the entire day. Um, you need to structure their day. I know that that's hard to do, especially during COVID. Many people right now, even as some are transitioning back to in-person school, many are still doing virtual school. And it's like, you never see your teenager. They're just in their room the whole time. Who knows if they're attending school or doing something else, but it's really important to build in structure throughout the day, you know, have a morning check in, you know, everybody has to come down to the table for breakfast. When you're at the breakfast table, there's no devices. Um, I've always advised my families to essentially have a little box outside of their dining room or their family room, wherever there's like a no cell phone, no device zone. When you're entering that area, deposit your devices, adults too, in that little box. And then when you leave, you can pick it up and that, guarantees you even just five or 10 minutes of quality time where you can really ask them some questions, get to know them, just do a little check-in and making sure that there's at least a couple of those check-ins every single day. I also advise that parents should institute family meetings at least once a week. These could just be 30 minutes and the family meeting could be for fun stuff too. It's not just for rules and regulations and talking about problems, but it's also for designing things that are fun. What do you guys want to do this weekend? Who has some ideas? But if you have that structure on the weekend, that's something that the whole family knows is time that you can spend together to talk about all things big and small that's affecting the family. And it's another regular check-in point with your teenagers on the weekend, as well as the ones on the weekdays. I think those are great pieces of advice, you know, that, Putting the devices away, I see the, you know, my younger children telling the parents, uh, please, why do you have the phone with you? You know, it signals to them that they're not as important as yes. they might want to be in the moment. And I know that there's all kinds of excuses. I'm waiting for your, you know, Tommy's mom to let us know when he's going to come by to pick him up. But uh, there's got to be better ways so we're not as attached. And, and I know many of us fall into that trap. Uh, but you're right. It's a role model. I like this idea of routine and also checking in. Uh, I will say this. We did a series of uh, in-depth interviews and focus groups with young teens as a, a formative research for a campaign about cannabis when it first became legal. And one of the things we had a, a long workshop with them about four hours, the kids talked about they liked it when their parents asked them what they were doing. Mm -hmm. There were parents who didn't. And it was like signify they didn't care. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the checking in as much as a child or a teen might be, you're asking me again, it was fine. It actually is a chance for feedback, right? And they do appreciate it. Absolutely. And that's a really great 
finding. And I think that that hopefully will help dispel any myths that parents think, well, they don't want me to talk to them at all. Like they just want to be left alone. Um, you know, how many times, even when you're an adult, um, have you said things like everything's fine, but actually secretly you were hoping somebody would come to your rescue and be like, no, isn't it really fine? Are you True. sure you don't need anything? Sometimes True. we do that, you know, and, and we, we maybe are trying to, you know, on our own say, well, we can handle this on our own. And sometimes we actually are very appreciative when people reach out despite you saying I'm fine. And so just know that for teenagers, that's probably times three or four, right? It's like, they're not that comfortable talking about their feelings. They probably do have some ideas like, Oh, are my parents the best people to talk to about this? But the more you can be a good role model, open that door and even sometimes share your own concerns and say, you know what, mom, dad, you know, we, we are having some hard times with this as well. We've been feeling kind of anxious lately, actually. And I don't know if you've been feeling that same way as well, but we do. Um, that opens a door for your teenagers to say, oh, it's okay. It's normal. It's normal to talk about these things. And I think that one of the things that we have found in research over and over again is that parents who try to cover up um, negative feelings or tell their teenagers, everything's fine. Why are you thinking that way? You're so lucky. Don't think about those things. Um, in some ways that teaches teenagers that their feelings are not valid and that they're not supposed to talk about anything that's bad. And so definitely, you know, it's so hard to be parents. Parents have to think about so many things, but one of the other things that parents have to think about is, you know, making sure that that door is open to talk about emotional symptoms. And sometimes parents themselves have their own stigma around that. And maybe they were raised a certain way. And so in their just kind of own normality and how they deal with these things are kind of passing on that same message to their teenagers. And so I think it's just really important for parents to be conscious of our own behaviors and talk to other parents and professionals about, you know, how do we keep that door open, even if it gives us a little bit discomfort too at times. Good point. It causes you to reflect on your own upbringing and realize you may be transferring some of those uh, biases or inclinations to your children. Uh, one of the things, Judy, that I know you talk about that I think would be helpful is the, um, the way you deliver criticism mm -hmm. to teenagers. What's your advice on giving them negative feedback in a constructive way? Well, I think it's really important to remember that teenagers take everything to heart and they're always listening. And even if they act like they don't want to be around you, um, deep down, they probably still think of you, the parents, as their heroes. And so what you do say matters to them. And I think it's important that when you are going to get, be giving them any kind of criticisms or constructive feedback, that you don't use words that are definitive, like always, never, or that you attribute things that you don't like about what they did to their character, like you're lazy, you're stupid, um, but really talk about the problem, talk about the actual problem, label the problem for what it is and talk about the problem as something that's outside of the individual. So for example, the dishes aren't being done as opposed to you're lazy, right? Or you never do the dishes. It's the dishes are not being done. And then inviting them to problem solve with you. What do you think we should do about that? You know, really inviting them into that conversation and brainstorming and teaching them to be proactive. I mean, you can just tell them what to do, but especially as teenagers are gaining their own agency, it's important to give them some sense of responsibility and also teach them assertiveness. You know, if you don't like what's going on, then I want to hear from you how you'd like to solve the problem because we're not going to solve everything for you. So let's have a conversation. We will help you, but you need to take part in this conversation actively. And I think that if you can talk about problems as you know, issues to be solved that are outside of the person, then teenagers can be a little bit 
more um, open to that feedback as well. And even if you're trying to give them criticisms, also acknowledge them for any efforts that you've seen. You know, I always use the sandwich approach where you say something kind, like, hey, thank you so much for sitting down with me. I know that, you know, this, this is the last thing you want to do with your Saturday, but I'm glad that we're sitting down. I've noticed that the chores are not getting done and that is bothering me. And I think that we should talk about it. And then once that conversation's over, like the sandwich technique is like to end it with something positive again. Hey, I really appreciate you sticking around for this conversation, even though I'm sure at certain times it was uncomfortable for you. You know, it can be helpful to cushion the blow a little bit by acknowledging the things that they are still doing well during these difficult moments. So it's really important to have positive things to say, not just negative. I think I read somewhere where your material is four to one, four positive things for every negative thing, right? Yeah. 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 Because if you start with a negative thing, they'll just shut off right away and they become defensive and they don't even hear anything else that you have to say, even if there are positive things down the line. Good point. Starting with it. Absolutely. And frankly, I think that applies to giving feedback to employees as well. And adults. Yeah. Everybody <laughs> of every age. I feel like we could all benefit from that. <laughs> Very true. Very true. I love the idea of the family meetings and I like having the kids involved and even selecting the family activities over the weekend. Let's talk very shortly for about younger children. As you mentioned, they show stress sometimes by talking about physical, like stomach ache or a headache. What advice you give to parents as they deal with this and open up their children to be able to talk about it? Yeah, you know, younger children, um, when they're young, they don't necessarily have all the emotion words to describe their emotions. So it's not that they're being evasive on purpose. It's just they don't have the emotional words and we know that emotions and body are inextricably connected. And so they're just expressing the part of their symptoms that they know better, which is body parts. You know, like most kids have learned that language, but maybe not languages like anxiety, sad, depressed, things like that. And so, you know, some of the tools that's really helpful for parents is to just teach their children emotion words. There's a number of different resources for this parenting books, um, therapeutic tools that you can buy even on Amazon, where it's picture books of people with different emotions. And that way children can start to learn to point to the emotions that they're feeling, even if they're not the ones to come up with those words. Um, one of the tools that I like to use with my, um, the, my patients who are younger children is the emotion thermometer. So you can just draw one on a piece of paper. Or there's some nice ones that you can buy as well, but basically you just hold up the thermometer and you ask the child, you know, where are you today? You know, if you're higher on the thermometer, that means that you're feeling really well. If you're really low on the thermometer, that means you're having a bad day. So even just that check-in, that simple check-in of that visual tool, that helps you to start the conversation. Oh, well, your thermometer is low today. So what's going on today that's making you feel low? And then that way you can kind of talk about what's happening throughout the day. It's really interesting. You know, sometimes parents say, well, I don't know if I ask my children or my teenagers certain questions, they're just not going to answer it. But actually, everybody would be very surprised that if you ask the question, they'll answer it. So if you do go around to asking them about what happened today, why do you why are you feeling not so well? They will tell you they, they will as long as you open that door. And I think that it's just making that emotional check in regular, you know, doing it every day, maybe setting aside a time, you know, wh whether it's the beginning of dinner or right before you go to bed just having some kind of ritual where you always have a check-in. Another thing that's really helpful for younger children is understanding gratitude. They can do gratitude exercises very early. And so again, when you first wake up in the morning, hey, what's one thing you're thankful for today? And the parent can say something to the child and the child can say something to the parent. And you can just learn to do that on a daily basis. That can also help the child be more in touch with their emotions. You know, I'm going to say the obvious here just because for the listeners, I'm a 
I'm trained myself as a social psychologist, not as a clinician, but uh, I learned how to persuade and habitual behaviors, reinforcement. So the idea of doing a ritual check-in is so smart because otherwise, if you only do it when they're upset, it looks like, you. what do you mean? Why are you asking me this? And so it's, it seems maybe redundant and unnecessary, but it also makes the child think about their feelings and articulate mm-hmm. them and feel confident talking to you about it because it becomes a ritual. Uh, and then it isn't like when you find when you do ask, they know that there's something they're asking about, right? Or there's something you're suspicious right. about. A very, very smart to do that. I want to ask about your book, uh, Stop Self-Sabotage. Tell us about the nature of the book. I want people to think about getting it themselves. I see it behind you there on the on the shelf. And, and give us some examples of tips and exercises that are in the book. Absolutely. So I wrote the book, Stop Self-Sabotage, because I realized that self-sabotage is a phenomenon that affects everybody almost universally. And even if it's not a big problem for you, you know somebody in your life who self-sabotages, or maybe self-sabotage is just a very occasional issue that you have, especially when you're feeling stressed or overwhelmed. But self-sabotage simply defined just means when you're getting in your own way, despite your best intentions. So maybe you've set out a goal for yourself in your career, in your relationships, you want to improve your family dynamics, you want to have better relationships with your children. But, you know, even though you have these goals, somehow you sometimes get in your own way for whatever reason. And a lot of different reasons can come up. And I find that self-sabotage is quite universal because as human beings, we all have two major drives and major drives are to attain reward and to avoid threat. And sometimes when we feel overwhelmed or when we have certain self-defeating beliefs or we grew up with certain ideas that were passed down to us, um, we're more prone to second guess. We're more prone to be fearful of taking risks. And when that happens, you stop thinking about the attaining rewards part and you only focus on the avoiding threat part. And that's what causes us to retreat in our behavior sometimes without us even consciously knowing about it. So my book is a scientific uh, program that is based in evidence-based treatment techniques that include cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavior therapy, and acceptance and commitment therapy principles. And it's six steps that you do in sequence in my book has a number of different practical and hands-on exercises that you do. And it takes you through how to deal with the types of thoughts that could get in your way, the types of feelings that can hold you back, and the types of behaviors that you see yourself doing, but can't stop those cycles. It helps you to identify these cycles ahead of time, make a plan for them so that you can finally eradicate self-sabotage from your life, whether if it's affecting you from your health to your relationships, to your career or anything else that you feel it's impacting you the most. And um, I've been very pleased with um, how people have responded to the book because people have said, you know, this is good because it has tools, you know, so it's not just a bunch of reading and then you're supposed to feel inspired and just go out and do stuff like you actually have a prescription, essentially, and activities that if you can practice them, they will make a difference. And you once you see that difference, you start to feel more confident and it builds on itself until you start to really notice these significant positive changes. You know, I like it because it sounds so uh, applicable to most people. I, you know, as an entrepreneur, I'm in a number of uh, uh, entrepreneur groups all of us have doubts about ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. And the imposter syndrome is is a very real phenomenon. No matter how successful you are, you can yes. walk in a room and feel like, gosh, I am the weakest person here. I don't have the capabilities. And, and there are some days when you feel like, I, I don't think I can really 
write that paper or give that speech or uh, have that positive attitude. So your book would be a, a set of tools to help. How do you deal with that? And and something, so it's, I mean, it's important to talk to other people, but it'd be nice to pick something up and say, I'm going to do this now and practice. So the book is like that, where there are exercises you can do. Is that right? And then specific yes. things that you know. Absolutely. Behavior. Yeah. So basically the book talks about the theories behind why these exercises work. It gives you the exercises in a very specific way. And then depending on how much time you have in a given day, I, in every chapter, I have different sets of exercises, depending on how much time you have that day, you know, things that you can do in the next 10 minutes, things that you can do throughout the next 24 hours and things that you can do throughout a couple of days during the week. And that way, you know, you can sort of tailor it to however much time you have in the moment to address it. Um, but obviously I recommend that everybody goes through all the exercises eventually. And it's that absolutely what you said, Renee, is that, you know, we do all have self-doubt, even the most successful people do. And we don't realize that thoughts become things, you know, thoughts that you have. Um, sometimes you start to become so habituated to them. You don't even realize how much they're impacting you. And this book really takes those thoughts out um, tells you it's okay to examine them. It's common. Everybody has these thoughts and, and there are ways around it without having to just force yourself to be positive all the time. That's not what this book is about. You know, it's really about recognizing that your thoughts are what they are and accepting them and working with them instead of saying, well, why do I have these thoughts? Like, why can't I just beat them away with affirmations? You know, it doesn't work all the time. Positive psychology is a wonderful movement, but I think sometimes it's been misused where people think, oh, if I'm just positive all the time, then everything will be fine. But that's not the way it works. You know, we're going to have negative feelings. We're going to have self-doubt and that's okay. It's really learning to be aware of them and to work with them. Oh, thank you, Judy. This has been really helpful. Unfortunately, we have to come to a close here. Listeners, this has been a conversation with uh, Dr. Judy Ho. Her book is Stop Stop Self-Sabotage. Stop Self-Sabotage. It's full of practical tips and the six step, steps or stages. Is that right? Six different ways, right, Judy, that you can uh, that you can look at, examine things in your life that are troubling you and deal with them. And as she said, positive psychology is one thing, affirmations. But sometimes you have to really work on issues or problems that you have. We've been talking about some of those tips and tools in this conversation, specifically for parents, how they can maintain healthy relationships with their teenagers and their young children. Thank you, listeners, for spending time with us on The Deciders. Hopefully you've heard some tips and insights and maybe inspired to pick up Stop Self-Sabotage by Judy Ho. You can hear our podcast anytime on our website at FraserCommunications.com. Fraser is a full-service advertising and marketing communications firm. Contact us at FraserCommunications.com to learn more. We'll be back next week here on The Deciders with Renee Fraser.